0: God bless, guys, and welcome once again to Research Podcast. In today's episode, we continue our look of uh, 1 John, beginning with chapter 2. We start this chapter, this wonderful chapter, uh, this time around, um, but not before we we briefly remind ourselves of what we considered last time we were together. And if you recall, we took a, a closer look at the teachings of these false teachers that the Apostle John was contending with. We noted that their theology was grounded firmly upon the baptism of Jesus and not the crucifixion. Thus, they were able to separate Jesus the man from the spiritual Christ. And They described this experience, this descending of the Spirit of, of God. Uh, At Jesus' baptism as being this divine sperma resting upon him and, and that his baptism served as the model for how we all receive this spiritual seed that allows us to become immune to sin per se. They rejected the crucifixion as being essential to salvation. They rejected the humanity of Jesus. They rejected the biblical teaching that we were or are sinners and sin when we sin. Something. Pretty simple as you sin when you commit sin was denied by these teachers. So straight off it it was a very pretty convenient teaching and pleasing to the flesh and it's no wonder why so many were drawn to these teachings and and people still are and and as we reflected last time we see uh, shades of these this docetism this this Gnostic belief where you know Uh, The world is evil, um, yet we're not perfect, but I'm uh, internally, God knows my heart, you know, my spirit. Um, I I pray every day, they say, which is generally a lie. Um, So we we see that that's still alive. It's just, it's very convenient to have this idea that I can live my life and still be okay with God. And so in response, we see John pick up. I kind of like pick away at the, at the few um, sayings that these teachers were, were preaching. And so last time we were together, we looked at those, those few sayings and, and they came in the form of, if we say. And so whenever you heard that phrase, if we say, it, it implied that this is really what these teachers were suggesting through their teaching. So um, those three were these. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves if we say we have not sinned we make him that being God a liar so John exposes their inconsistency and utter lie that one could be right with God and yet live a life of sin there is just no reasoning from scripture that one could make that kind of conclusion. He destroys the notion that they could have any form of fellowship without the cross because it is precisely at the cross that we encounter or enter into fellowship, koinonia, with God and each other. It is at the cross that our sins are actually dealt with not at the baptism of jesus and he adds the importance of jesus's blood being the actual means through which all this is possible thus clearly proving just by the fact by stating that jesus bled he proved that he was very much human at the cross and so the belief that Uh, we can do whatever we want and still remain in the good graces of God was simply a delusional uh, thought at best and nowhere near being biblical. And we we, we do not only deceive ourselves when we consider ourselves to be good, but we make God to be a liar when, when He sends His Son to die on the cross because of our need of a Savior. So if the cross was not necessary, then God becomes an unnecessarily cruel God. Because if, if it's not essential to our salvation, then why did God punish His Son in such a way? Which is something that, that John addresses once again in, in today's portion this uh the crucifixion the work of Jesus the reason why Jesus had to come into this world in human form the logos the word became flesh it was with purpose so let's get to the word of God I'm really excited to to read this portion we won't finish all that we want to say um in this half hour that I I hope to, to uh to kind of condense it all in but if not we'll we'll put up a part two in 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 a a week's time um so let's read the word of god first john chapter 2 we're going to read verses 1 to 6 is what we're going to be focusing on the word of god says this my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father in Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him, whoever says He abides in Him, ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Amen. When I was younger, when I was a, a Christian A young Christian, I just started off really kind of, I mean, I've always been in church in one capacity or another, but really when I, I, and of myself, started to think upon certain things in terms of church and and my faith, um, I, like most young Christians do, I was drawn to the power that the gospel clearly taught, the scriptures made manifest to me. It was this power that I sought after as a means to kind of verify and give me assurance of my faith. Which, by the way, was very little, almost non-existent, if I can be honest with you. And I looked for signs and wonders because, to my mind, this was going to be the proof the thing that would solidify that would assure me of my faith and thus of my salvation so this was the proof that i was looking for that the proof that the gospel was true and powerful that the proof was in that separation that that separated my faith this gospel the word of god from the rest Of other religions was this this power display and I wanted to see therefore miracles happen I wanted to see healings occur I wanted to see the miraculous I wanted to see uh, miracles happening as regularly as, as 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 possible just as it did in the days of Jesus just as it did in the days of Moses just as it did in the days of Elijah And so I would think to myself, if only I could see a miracle, if only God would use me to display his power and undoubtedly confirm um, whatever it is that I would be preaching or sharing with people. You know that 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 would be that, that confirmation and, and I would lead many uh, to to Christ through these displays and it would be a verification upon my life and, and upon my faith if miracles were, were made evident in my life. So if only I could see a miracle, I will no longer, even on a personal level, I will no longer struggle with these doubts that I have in my heart and in my mind. Because truth of the matter. Is that I did have these do- these thoughts of doubt in my heart, and I'm I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. Especially if if there are any young in any youth who are listening to this, that we struggle with these sort of doubts. How can I know for certain that what I believe, what I've been taught, is the truth? You know. So so for me, the pursuit of authenticity or verification uh that pursuit came in the form for me anyways in the form of of the display of power the display of miracles so the gospel because the gospel the, the, the scriptures indeed it carries with it a power beyond what i had imagined and it's taken me some time to come to this realization it's only by the grace of God, because the gospel does, does carry with it a power beyond what we can imagine. The only problem with me was that I was searching for it in the wrong places, as I've confessed. I was searching for it in the miracles. I was searching for it in the healings. And I, like many others before me, thought that the power was going to be found in miracles in signs and in wonders. Not realizing that those miracles and signs that Jesus did, for example, in his earthly ministry, really pointed to the greater work or power that was to come. Turning water into wine can can bring amazement to a crowd. Healing the sick may inspire hope. Walking on water could definitely... Sink our hearts into the depths of wonder and amazement and awe, right? But not one of these miracles actually do anything for a person. I mean, internally, experientially, like in, in, in actuality. So, so, though it displays, and please don't misinterpret, I'm not downplaying these miracles. They display indeed the power and, and authority of Jesus over nature and how he is the sovereign God that he can, can still the storm. He, he indeed is the creator and holds authority over it all. You know, he has that, it, it displays his power. But it didn't bring an assurance of one's faith to those who witnessed these things. Indeed, they testified to the power and glory of Jesus. They served as as a witness to whom Jesus was claiming to be, and that is the Son of God. But even with such a great testimony and display of absolute power, unimaginable, a power that has never been seen again since then, it brought no real change in the life of those who had the privilege of witnessing such a display of power it had no real impact uh, upon the ones who witnessed them It, it testified it verified the claims of Jesus and, and we need to kind of stay there because that is its purpose. Its purpose, the, the miracles and the wonders and the signs and the healings, its purpose was to testify, to give testimony to the claims of Christ. It was never the means through which we would come into faith. And I think that is is something that needs to be highlighted and really emphasized. We need to bring clarity to that, that it served as a sign. That's why John calls them signs. We see it in the crowds. These crowds that witnessed, these crowds saw them firsthand. These crowds that witnessed all the you know the the feeding of the thousands these crowds that witnessed multiple healings by the hand of god right these crowds that saw these signs and wonders were the very same crowds that denied him at the cross it was the very same crowd that cried out with all enthusiasm and excitement crucify him crucify him crucify him again i want to clarify that make that crystal clear in your mind the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles it is to it was to bring testimony it was the witness to the claims of jesus and so therefore scripture places these wonderful miracles before us to point out To us, a few things that I want to kind of bring to your attention really quick. Firstly, like I said, to prove to us the deity of Jesus, who Jesus claimed to be. Secondly, that in and of themselves do not bring assurance of faith. It doesn't bring you to faith. In other words, it does not save you. It is not its purpose or function. It is not the means through which we will be saved. It's not the means through which our faith will be made more secure, where we find certainty in it. It's not in that. So my encouragement is don't look for that. And thirdly, though they are a display of God's power, it is not the power that we ought to be seeking after. It displays His power of course, God is mighty. He is powerful, but it is not the power that we ought to be seeking after for verification. If that is what we're here, if this is our purpose that we're trying to go through First John, that is not the power we look for. So what then is the power that does hold an effect within our personal lives, an actual effectual work And display of God's absolute power over the impossible. It is the power that changes a man from clearly seeing a miracle happen before his eyes and still not believe. Alright? You see a, a power display there. There's miracles happening. And the person who witnesses still does not believe. And then on the other side... You have a man who believes even without seeing one bit of a miracle. That is power. Because if anything, it shows you through their disbelief, in Jesus, after all those countless of miracles that they have witnessed, just how sinful we really are. I mean, you are seeing on display the power of God and still people were like, I'm not too sure that this Jesus is who he says he is. That shows you just how corrupt we are, how um, Im- impossibly, humanly speaking, impossibly we- impossible it is for us to come to God even after witnessing uh, a display of power such as feeding the thousands, healing the sick, healing the blind, raising the dead to life and still we have questions. That should show you just how corrupt and sinful we are. And it has to take the greatest work of power from God's end to change the nature of a man from disbelieving or having a disbelieving nature to having a new nature that grants him the ability to exercise faith. That is the power of God in man. And that is the power we have to be seeking after. It is the raising of the spiritually dead to life in Christ. But what has this got to do with 1 John? We might be thinking. Well, John is dealing precisely with this question. How can we have assurance of God's work? How can we know we have come to know God? How can we be certain that we have a genuine experience with God? Well, it's easy. Have we experienced this power of God to change our nature, of of God changing our sinful nature? And how can we know if if we have had this or it's to this that we turn to now in this section that, that we consider um, in this portion, in these six verses that we get to analyze and, and go through. So let's read verse, verse 1 once again. And, and first, uh, before we get to this, what we've laid out, how we can verify, there are a few elements that I want to kind of address first. Um, just to kind of bring clarity, there are certain things here in in the, in particularly in the first two verses, where I'm going to spend some time on, that I need to clarify and explain because I, I want to make sure that we're clear on these things before we get to to uh, finding assurance through these verses, in particular found in verses three to six. Um, So bear with me, let's read once again, Uh, let's read verse 1. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like I said, we need to lay down a bit of a foundation here before we go into explaining these things. So we'll spend some time explaining this and we'll come back to this this assurance and, and finding, um, uh, I guess, that, that that way of identifying that we are experiencing or we have experienced the power of God. But first note with me in this verse, and it's important to kind of highlight, just to kind of bring this back into context, what we've been explaining um, in in the past few sessions. We see here that he tells or he addresses the church. He tells them that the purpose as to why he is writing these things to them was so that they may not sin. At which point we must stop and think this through a little uh, because we might ask the question, what possible reason is there for John to share this concern with, with the brothers? Why would he be saying so that you won't sin? Why would he have to say that? I mean, he's speaking to a church. Well, verse 19 of the same chapter might share a little bit of insight as to the possible reason why. What we find in verse 19 is that some who were a part of the congregation had left the church in favor of what these so-called teachers were preaching to them. As I said before, What these guys were teaching was indeed pleasing to the flesh. It was very convenient. Hey, you can live your life and of, of, you know, sinful life and practice and live in that, live in filth, and yet still be okay with God. It it was very pleasing to the flesh. This 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 deceitful teaching was really um, impactful to the congregation. It deceitfully taught that committing sin did not compromise their standing before God, and that they could live their lives as they pleased and still have the spirit, uh, or have their spirit go to go to heaven. And so it might be a possibility that some of the congregations were indulging in sin or maybe at the very least were being tempted to abandon the apostolic teachings so that they may go and, and sin and still be okay. But to those who have a changed nature, to those in that congregation, in that church, in that assembly, who had a, a new heart, would hear, The voice of the Lord through the apostles remarks that those who say they have fellowship with God and and still sin are one, lying to others, two, deceiving themselves, and three, making God to be a liar. So he's warning them that they are being deceived by these these docetics, these, these Gnostics. Who, who would have you believe that it is okay to sin. He's encouraging them not to step in line with these men who are practices of sin because living in such a lifestyle clearly and easily distinguishes them from those who are in fellowship with God and those who aren't. Those who step in into a life of sin are stepping out of the will of God and oppose oppose Him. By their rebellion. And that is why he states empathetically. that, That his purpose in writing this is so that they would not sin. And that word there, no, in the Greek is, is a strong, absolute denial. They were living in danger, playing with fire. And so he's warning them. He has such a pastoral heart towards this church. But, but again, we see his loving heart and concern for the church in the way he goes on to say that if they have sinned, which suggests to us that he, was, he had a good suspicion um, that they might be practicing some form of sin, that if they had, that these strong convictions that John is bringing to them, the, that he's sharing, would undoubtedly would have caused the church to kind of tremble in fear that they were in rebellion against God. Because if you have a new heart and you love God, you don't want to rebel against God. You love God. So what makes this so loving is, is, is the truth that John doesn't, doesn't just lay this truth out without first establishing or stating that there is a, there is a clear possible way in which you can still come back to God. You are sinning against God, he says. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave them in despair and without a hope. He tells them that if they have fallen into sin because of these these deceptors, right, these guys, these deceivers, sorry, uh, they have an advocate in Jesus which may answer the question that some may have. Does this teach that we can become perfect or, or, or sinless? Is John making that assertion that, that, you know what, if we can work hard enough, we will become sinless ourselves? John makes it clear that that a Christian is very much capable of still Being affected by sin, unlike those who claim to be immune to the effects of sin, John recognizes that while we remain in this flesh, we will participate in a battle between desiring the will of God and His will for us and and, and the flesh's carnal cravings that we fight with. But to the regenerate believer, to that believer, that, that one who has a new heart, When presented with what is clearly sinful in the eyes of the Lord, we will repent from it. Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice. And so John, the spokesman of God, is speaking to them and and they are going to respond positively. But I just love, I just love the way uh, that John approaches this. He's so loving. He he refers to them as my little children, not in a degrading or humiliating way, but rather in a loving and embracing way. Not only does he call them, you know, little children, but he adds that possessive word in the Greek is mou, which which means my, my little children. This would have, you know, this would have emphasize that that clear contrast between the apostle and those false teachers or teacher, as we saw last time. On the one hand, you have John being tender and caring and and his consideration of this church is, is, is made evident, you know, while those false teachers that had infiltrated the church were teaching that it didn't really matter how you treated others or this is fair game to them. You know, it doesn't really matter because what you do in the flesh, it doesn't matter. You're still going to go to heaven. So you, you could potentially still sleep with another brother's wife and they, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't even budge because you know what? It's of the flesh and it doesn't matter. But here you see clear evidence that when we come in contact with God and His church, that from there flows a love for one another. But you see he that He addresses this issue in such a loving and tender, tender way says there is sin, but if you have sinned, we have an advocate. So not only does he tell them the truth about sin, and not only does he give them a hope that we have, uh, and that is found in Jesus, the advocate, but also by presenting Jesus as this advocate, this fully functioning uh, lawyer, if you will. That they are given instruction as to how they must proceed before God. And it's through the advocacy of Jesus. So what does this advocate do? He represents their client in the courtroom and presents their case before the judge. So in this case, Christ has been identified as our advocate. God is therefore the judge to whom the case must be presented. And we, the sinner or the believer, renewed in Christ, are the clients of this righteous, as John puts him or describes him, as this righteous advocate. He is the advocate that has never lost a case and will never lose one. Now, why? Can can we be certain of this? Because it was God Himself who charged Christ with the task of never making sure, making sure that he never loses one of those whom God the Father had handed over to Jesus. So it is God. You see that God is the one that gives Jesus this role of advocate. To make sure that he would not lose even one of those that God the Father gives to Jesus. That they would not be lost. Jesus said in John 6, 37 and 40. I think this is vital that we understand this in terms of his advocacy, in terms of his work at the cross. And so we see here Jesus say these words in John 36, 40. Uh, 240 It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. He identifies there who is the one who sent him. This is the will of my father. That everyone who looks on the son, of, uh, on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And we find in the, in the words of Jesus the will or the purpose of God for Jesus. What his task is for him to accomplish. So we see here that Jesus is given a mission by God the Father. He's, he's handed his mission to Jesus and says, I want you to fulfill, I want you to accomplish this mission. And that is that he should lose nothing of what he had received from the Father. So who are those or what is it that he receives of the Father that he will not lose? it is the elect we won't go into great depths as to why we interpret it to mean the elect but we will point out to you that there is an action that occurs prior to the actions of those who look onto the sun and believe because many people say it's conditioned it's based upon us believing in the sun that we are saved, and, and we've, looked, we've dealt with that briefly in, in our, in our um, foundation series. So go through that there. Um, in predestination, we see it there. In, in regeneration, it, 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 we deal with it there. So we won't go into it in great depth, but we will make mention here from this text that we've just quoted that there is an action that occurs prior to the action of one who uh, believes in the Son. Okay, and that is and the action of God, the action that God takes. And that is that, that of God's giving a people, handing a people to Jesus. And these are the people that look onto God and believe. It is not based upon their belief, but upon the election of the father of a certain people. Does that make sense? Like if you look at that verse there, the the action is God picks a people, hands it over to Jesus and says, "I want you to make sure you don't lose any of these people." So there's an an actual choosing and an election that a, that goes with that statement. There's a people I'm handing them to you. Do not lose not one of these people. Right? So it's clear that that it's not based upon these men's choosing. The The choice was already made by the fact that God hands a people to Jesus saying do not lose any of these. But the reason why I bring this text to your consideration is not to prove election but rather to show you that the Father is not in opposition to Christ or us. That is so important that you need to see this because I don't want you to view God the Father as a big mean God. Um, that we need to be protected from. And in a sense, like, like you know, we, we, we can't, uh, like, he's so against us. And that it takes Jesus, the nice good son, to kind of cool him off. I don't want to p- uh, p- portray God the Father in that way. Especially when we consider next time the propitiation that Jesus does he for us. Through the cross. I don't want that. No, no. I want to, to discourage you from viewing God as, as such, you know, by revealing to you that it was actually God the Father that appointed the Son as our advocate. It is so important that you see that. It was the Father's will to charge Christ for this very special calling of advocacy, that he will become our advocate. God chose him. To be that. And it was God who entrusted Jesus with the task of, of looking after the people that God had chosen. God is loving. God is loving towards you. So, so God charges. He hands Jesus this people who says, Do not lose not even one of these. So it is God that entrusted Jesus with the task of not losing one of those whom the Father gave him. Why does he trust the Son with such a lofty task? we got to ask why does God, the Father trust Jesus, the Son, in this massive task he can that what makes God rely upon Jesus that he won't fail in losing one of these people that God has has elected. Why? Because he's just like him he is just like the father he shares his deity he is god he is righteous the righteous jesus and so that's why god trusts jesus with this task he he gives him this mission and soon we will see the means through which jesus accomplishes the will of the father in bringing assurance of faith it is placed on an immovable, unshakable, ironclad clause that, that for God, it, it guarantees our salvation, right? He, so he presents this case that God just cannot deny it. God cannot turn away from it. It is, it is an assurance that is unshakable. But consider this, is this, and with this I'll leave you and we'll come back to verse 4 there's a lot to take out we'll leave it there for now Um, I don't want to go into too much but just just, I want to leave you with this just think upon this is this how you view God the Father do you see him as a mean God uh, up in heaven who's ready to smite everyone or do you see him as as it is presented to us here in John, through the fact that we have an advocate in Jesus, as the one who set in motion the work of your salvation, if you're a believer. And listen, do you see God in that light? That He is the one that that put this together, entrusting it into the hands of Jesus. Do you see Him in that light? As that loving heavenly Father, this is the hope that John gives to these people who have been manipulated and confused by these false teachers. Maybe you've been deceived, which led you to be, I don't know, encouraged to sin in ways that clearly oppose God's will. Maybe you've been Listening or watching YouTube videos of really prominent teachers who just seem to kind of brush away at the at the sin that clearly lies within your heart and just gives you a boost of confidence and motivation, and you're you're ex- excited at that that kind of just like God is loving and He's cool with me. And you're good to live your life just like these were, who John is kind of contending with. I want to align myself here with John in the sense that no. If anyone does sin, you are rebelling against God. But do not fret. Because we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus the Righteous. He has appointed him as our advocate, so it's important that we identify that. And with that, I want to leave it, leave it there, and we'll, we'll, we'll treat verse two next time. And as we go on and unpack and, and kind of get back on, onto the train of thought in terms of how do I come to assurance of of my faith? What are the things, what is the procedure that John gives us in this text that I can verify? Because if we're looking for it in, in signs and wonders, you will come to the same end result that we saw in the scriptures. I mean, throughout throughout all of it, you look at Moses, you look at Elijah, you look at Jesus's um, miraculous ministry. You see that there were so many people, so many that just denied. I mean, Egypt, a whole nation denied the work of God. And it was so clear. Elijah, same thing. People denied Jesus himself. And people still denied. Why? Because you are not going to find assurance in these things. So come back and we'll deal with these things. We'll come back to that as we kind of chisel away at... at, at um certain issues that i want to make sure i clarify before we get and deal with with that uh, proposal um so next time in verse 2 we'll deal with verse 2 and the issues that i want to kind of address there in terms of propitiation and how jesus accomplishes this work for now i pray that you are blessed with that and i pray that you see god the father in this wonderful way Uh, that that Jesus presents to us in John and John is just doing this so wonderfully we have an advocate God appointed Jesus as our advocate so come the only way we can come to the Father is through Jesus no one comes to the Father except through me Jesus makes that so clearly and we're looking at that um, as to why that is I mean you you see it. it's so wonderful it's just so wonderful to see when you go through the scriptures so I want to leave you with that I want to encourage you and I pray that you um, you are blessed by this and we pray that God was glorified. Till next time, God bless. God bless, guys, and welcome once again to Research Podcast. Uh, as we continue our look of First John today, um, last time we were together, we finished off, well, we only got up to verse 1 in terms of unpacking verses 1 to 6. So we're going to continue on with that. Uh, this time around um, but let's just get, kind of refresh our memories let's read the portion and then we'll focus on verse 2 and continue on from then from then on uh, the Word of God says this my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for us only but also for the sins of the whole world So last time we we were together, we were looking at verse 1. We started to unpack this um, in terms of the nature in which John writes this. And we've always addressed this as John being the apostle of love he was always concerning and the way he expressed himself in this opening verse in chapter 2 uh demonstrates that that love that he had for the church in that he was really loving in contrast to uh to those teachers those false preachers that he was contending with that were really kind of it doesn't really matter how we are. As long as we, we, you know, we're good with God, it doesn't really matter how we treat other people. And so we see here that there's this contrast between the way that John expresses himself to the church and those who he was opposing in terms of their teaching. Um, and Something that we, we meditated upon in last time in verse 1 was this role that is given to Jesus as the advocate that has been appointed by the Father, now, Jesus Christ, Or to take this up and we meditated upon this and reflected even in the gospel of John in where uh, John chapter 6 verse 37 to 40 where we're presented with this task that is given to Jesus by the father that he is handed the father hands Jesus a people and and charges him to not lose all Not one of them, not even one. Uh, But instead, Jesus says that it is given to me so that I may raise them up on the last day. And for this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so that's the purpose with which God the Father gives him this task. And so we kind of brought this back in terms of the purpose that the Father gives Uh, Jesus is this advocacy um, where He comes and He saves the people. He saves them. And we, something that we kind of really kind of reflected upon in that, something that needed to be highlighted is this notion, this false notion that sometimes we always perceive God the Father as always being mean, a big mean God. But the truth of the matter is the fact that God has saved you is because the Father has appointed that. He has predestined that. He has elected that. It was in His good pleasure to save you. And so... We shouldn't see him in that light. He is holy, indeed. He he absolutely uh, cannot stand sin. Uh, that is one hundred percent accurate. But he is also loving, and we see that in the this charge and this task that he gives Jesus to save a people that God the Father Himself elects and hands them to Jesus. And so it's really comforting to see that we can come to the Father through Jesus in that way and see God the Father as this loving Father and and keeping in mind the use of that name that he is our Heavenly Father, our perfect Father. Um, So with that in mind, we're going to get to the the actual way in which Jesus fulfills or um, puts into effect this advocacy that we may come now before the father and we see this in verse two and so let's reread verse two that we may kind of get the gist of this that the, the main point of all of this uh, it, it, it kind of bring it all together so let's read verse two he says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this is very important. This this verse here, because there are some things here that we need to address immediately, and we're going to get to um, get to them. We need to deal with them before we kind of continue continue on with with our main goal here, which is we're trying to get assurance of our faith how can we come to really know whether we are saved whether we are in a genuine relationship with God that is the the purpose as to why we've started this study of first John but there are a few things presented here kind of obstacles if you will that we need to address and we need to overcome because um, there are those who might take this verse and twist it or interpret it in a way in which it doesn't kind of harmonize with the rest of of scripture where if we were to take this verse in isolation we could make it say things that that the rest of scripture just does not teach Um, and so we're going to break this down but first i want to highlight or focus on something here and 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 that is as i mentioned the way through which we have this uh advocacy in jesus how Does Jesus have this, let's say, leeway, if you will, just for lack of words? um, Why does God the Father see Jesus in such a favor that he will respond to the request of Jesus? Essentially, is what we're dealing with here today. So, we have established that Jesus is our advocate assigned by God himself. We have said that it is Christ who has who was charged with the duty to assure the salvation of a people handpicked by God. And that's so important that we get that. That he would not lose, not even one. And John then moves on to the, to the means, as I said, by which Jesus solidifies our assurance, of faith, and why he's such a reliable uh, savior. Why he's reliable to accomplish the task that has been granted to him. And I will say here, that he already has accomplished it. We need to understand that, that this has already happened. It's done. It's said. But on what basis does John place this assurance? It's simple. On a word here that sadly has been debated over. And, and still to this day goes on this debate. Should Christ's atonement or sacrifice be viewed simply as an expiation or as a propitiation... Or both? This is essentially what most people debate over in terms of scholars and, and theologians as to what is being said. What is the word here that is used in, in the Greek that the Isvi has, has uh, translated as propitiation. That word here is hilasmos. Hilasmos, uh, which has been translated into various different words such as atonement or expiation or even remedying by some translations. But the way the ESV translate, uh, translates it is propitiation. Well, in order to kind of understand what John is saying, we must familiarize ourselves with the, the differences between these terms being used to translate this word hilasmos. Right, Hilasmos. What is the difference between expiation and propitiation? Well, when we say that Christ's work expiated our sins, what is being expressed by that word is how Jesus dealt with our sin. That at the cross, through the sacrifice of his life, he expiated that is, he removed the sin that we had. So that is the way in which expiation works. So what that word means, it means the removal of sin in basic terms. So while the word propitiation, on the other hand, while the the, the word of propitiation views the sacrifice of Jesus as not simply the removal of sin from the, the believer, but rather its focus is not on the effect that it has on man primarily, though it does have a connection there, but rather the effect or the result it has in, in, in God's dealing with man. So expiation is more focused upon the work that is happening within the man or, or within the person that is being forgiven, while propitiation deals with the attitude that God has towards that man that is being forgiven. I hope that that is kind of clear and I'm hope I'm, I am hope that I'm explaining this um, right to you and that this is making sense the point of difference is that at the cross Jesus's sacrifice and this is dealing with propitiation here that at the cross Jesus's sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God that hanged above the head of the sinner so we are well aware of the Romans when where Paul tells us Um, that the wages of sin is death. I think we're we're very well aware of, of that portion in Romans. The wages of sin is death. So that is to imply that there is a just payment that is expected or demanded from God for all who sin. And the truth of the matter is that we all face this condemnation because we all have sinned. And so they will face this death. It has to happen for in order for the justice of God to be served. So this judgment hangs above the head of all men since all men have sinned. We all face this judgment in where we will face death. So it was at the cross of Christ that God punishes those who are His. At the cross of Christ is where God deals with that sin and He fulfills that that. that declaration that the wages of sin is death so Jesus takes that punishment that was due to us at the cross and he absorbs that full wrath of God that was going to fall upon the elect upon his people Thus, in the process, he appeases the wrath of God. That is, he satisfies the wrath of God. He does away with the demand of justice over our sin. So it isn't just an act of removing uh, our sin problem. Uh, that, that's not just the only thing that occurs at the cross, but rather the punishment of sin as well just not those things those elements but since jesus is perfectly righteous there is no sin in him so it is all those whom god elects for salvation all these people it is their sin their sin that is placed on christ and christ takes the fall for us he takes the wrath of god for us And it is the wrath due to our sins. That's what we deserve for our sins. That the wrath of God was fully exhausted upon the body of the Son. Liberating us from the wrath of God. This is propitiation. This is what propitiation is. This is what that word hilasmos means in the Greek. It's to... It's the idea of appeasing a God's, a satisfying God's wrath, that, that anger that is lingering above us. And it is satisfied, it is quenched, it is no longer active. There is no longer red hot coming after us with vengeance because we are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus takes that. And I want to clarify that it is God it is God who appoints this role of Jesus. And, and I don't want to make it seem like Jesus goes unwilling. He goes willingly to the cross for this reason He came to earth. So the question becomes... How does this work of propitiation apply to the advocacy of Christ before the Father's throne? So I just want to make sure that we grasp this. So this is what propitiation is. And if I can be honest with you, that Hilasmos incorporates both the element of expiation and propitiation. But the ESV puts propitiation because the, the greater emphasis is applied upon the effect that it has on God. As opposed to what it does for man. Now, what the effect that it has on God overspills onto the effect upon man, meaning that first of all, it deals with God and his attitude and his anger towards us so that we no longer have him angry towards us. And as a result, there's that removal of our sin, and we can come before him. So again, we come to that question, um, how does this work of propitiation apply to the advocacy of Christ before the Father's throne? Well, it happens in this manner, that our sins were dealt with at the cross, and therefore, find forgiveness in the Father. That is what Christ does. At the cross, that's what propitiation hilasmos means. What that what Jesus does at the cross is he satisfies the wrath of God, removes it from us, from our path, that it was heading our direction. We were going to get smack hit with this wrath with its full force. Instead, Jesus absorbs that and, and keep in mind, again, I want to re-emphasize this: that it is God who who wills that to happen. It is Christ who wills that to happen. And it is the spirit that applies this perfect work in our lives. So that is what propitiation is. And what a hope we have in such a glorious gospel. This is the good news. Jesus stands ever, therefore, before the presence of the Father as our advocate with the evidence of his perfect work. That's what he does. That's what he's doing right now as we speak. He stands before the Father as this evidence of this work that he's done that has satisfied the wrath of God. And John John puts it puts it this way: in the book of Revelation, when he's describing Jesus in his vision as appearing as the lamb who was slain. If you recall. At that portion in Revelations, he he, he bears the, the marks, John says, of his death as a constant declaration that the sins of the elect have been dealt with for all eternity. What a glorious Savior. How sweet is this precious word of God that we can now stand before God the Father, through the advocacy of, of Jesus, that it, John recognizes that we will fail, we stumble, we, we mess up. But he says to, to, to the church, Ah, but little children, if one does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous. Why? Because He is the propitiation of our sins. Through Jesus, God no longer sees us in anger. He embraces us and He loves us. How wonderful is this? How glorious is the gospel? And this should bring joy and comfort. An assurance because it doesn't depend upon your performance, but on the the perfect work of Christ. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And now with that in mind, we come to this other obstacle. One that is much more more pressing in terms of our interpretation or how we view this. Because this, as I said, is one of those verses that many will come and kind of devour it and just mistreat it, essentially. And the second half of this verse, let's reread this. It says, He is the propitiation of our sins and not not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's clear by now, if you've been following us, that where we stand in terms of In terms of God's work, in terms of salvation, in terms of um, having an elect. Clearly, we come from the perspective that Scripture teaches pretty clearly. And we we went through it in the foundation series. Very evident that God has a people or certain people, an elect, a chosen people. And so when we come to this verse, the challenge is, well then, um, doesn't it clearly say that he does this work of saving or propitiating the wrath of God, that it's not just for them, but also for the whole world. It's pretty evident that this is the work of salvation applied to the whole world. Well, is it? We come to this very prominent issue that we face. We're faced with the, in the evangelical circle because, till this day, it's debated. We still argue, and it's one of those things that you know, we kind of, we 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 don't agree on. We have stated that the propitiation of Christ at the cross is limited to the ones elected by God before the foundation of the world. I mean, we saw that in John chapter 6, like God picks a people, the Father hands it to Christ, and he charges him, do not lose not one of them. And we saw the way in which he secures that salvation, it is through the cross, the propitiation. And so we declare, we, we say that it is, it is limited to the ones elected by God before the foundation of the world. But here we read that John says that it is applied to the whole world. So which one is it? Is it to the whole of mankind, all of mankind, or only to the elect, as we have argued? To answer this question, I, I, I treat it from two different perspectives. We need to kind of come from two places, one from a kind of like a logical argument because if we claim or take the stand that this indeed applies to all of mankind, the whole world as many suggest, what does that uh what 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 is it that that has or what's the result of that that thought that argument uh is essentially what I want to get to. What that does? To, what is it that that does to the rest of the cohesive word of God as well? How does that challenge the rest of Scripture? So we're got, we're going to see that through. And secondly, I'll present to you a case of how John views the extending reach of Jesus' salvic work at the cross that sheds light upon how we must interpret or understand his use of the word world okay by referring to his gospels and revelation so i want to say that again so that's going to be my second argument and and i'm going to present to you that if you begin to investigate into the way john perceives the work the saving work of jesus how he sees that is it applied to the whole world or is it restrictive is it limited to us to an elect to a a specific group of people Or does he view it as it is applied to the rest, every single person who has ever lived and ever will live? Does John see it that way? We need to get to that because if we come to our own conclusion, what we are doing, it's it's important that we get this because we don't want to bring our own meaning to this phrase, but rather allow John to determine for us how he viewed Jesus' salvation, i.e. was it really for everybody? Who has ever lived. So that's what I want to do. Two main arguments. okay? Two main points. As to why we say. That this cannot be be referring to the whole world. That the the salvation. The work at the cross. Was applied across the board. Why it is not that. Why John has a specific. Group of people in mind. And, And we're going to draw from two. Two main arguments. So the logical reasoning. Firstly let's kind of think things through for a moment the implications of saying that indeed john is referring to the whole world at large let's think that through because if you follow that chain of events if you will then that's going to lead you to some big big questions that you are not going to answer because scripture just does not answer it that way Now, we have already made evidently clear that the one who charges Christ with the mission of saving a certain people, back in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 40, and that's not the only time, is God. So, God is the one that charges him with this. So, Jesus is given his mission of bringing about the salvation of a certain people. Now, if we take the stance, the position that Jesus is called to save the whole wide world entirely, It gives reason to say that Jesus therefore, and hear me out here, that if that is the case, that we're saying that at the cross, Jesus died for every single human being, it gives reason to say that Jesus therefore fails the father in the mission that he was given because not all are saved and some, a lot actually, a lot are lost. He loses many, many, many people. We're talking a lot. I can't give you a number because I don't know a number, but we know for certain that there is going to be people who are lost a lot and you just have to look around the world and see what what state it's in. So it makes Jesus the result of following this 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 thought is it makes Jesus an unreliable savior. We can go back to John 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and say, well, what's the point of him being an advocate if he loses cases? He's not a very reliable advocate, but that's not what John is trying to present to us. He's actually trying to present to us that he's a very reliable advocate. He's trustworthy. We need to kind of think that through. Now, like I said, if we take that stance, that's where it leads us to. It leads us to a failing savior it makes jesus unreliable at best he makes him a potential savior in which we have no real assurance and that is the issue that we're trying to address here how can we have assurance it is because he is reliable so to put it another way we can all agree that man is fallen and he's in need of saving we can all agree on that We can all agree that that we can can not save ourselves, that it it is only God who can save. We all agree on that. Then the conclusion must be that God has not chosen to save all. Just follow that thought. You know, man is fallen and is in need of a savior, is in need of saving. And that God is the one that can save. Therefore, in conclusion, the conclusion has to be that God has not chosen to save all because not all are saved. So using reasoning and and just just following that thought all the way through, as, as pleasing as that may seem to us, it is not the biblical stance. We then cannot automatically assume that John means the whole world and every inhabitant that has ever existed. Otherwise, this would lead us to everyone being saved, which you cannot defend from scripture that this is what God, um, God is teaching in his word. No, clearly there will be people who will inherit the eternal life that is given through Jesus. And there are those who will be cast out into that eternal flame, into the lake of fire. Or it leads you to the other path that God tries his hardest to save everyone, but he fails in doing so because of whatever reason you want to put. We didn't choose him or whatever it is. Again, we find that this cannot be from Scripture. We, we've argued against that, so we must identify then how does John use this phrase? Because that is important for our understanding. You know, it cannot be that the whole world is saved because clearly Scripture teaches that not all the whole the whole world is going to save be saved, and it cannot be that that you know this work is applied to everyone and then God fails he tries his best and he fails because then that presents to us a weak God it presents to us that he is not rely it's not a reliable thing it's not certain there's no assurance so again how does John view this and this is my second argument who is in view when John refers to the saving work of Christ Who does he envision or who is he referring to? When we read Revelations chapter 5, verse 9 to 10, we come across something that is very interesting about the way that John perceives salvation, the way he understands the the salvic work of Jesus, the way Jesus works in salvation. He describes the scene as the Lamb being worshipped. For his work of salvation, so we can we can easily identify that the subject or the topic is salvation. That's clear because he's being worshipped for the salvation that the Lamb has brought, and John shares light on the salvation that the Lamb has made possible, and the reason why he's being worshipped. It is evident. So in verse nine, it says this. All right. It's important that we read this. Again, Revelations chapter 5, 9 to 10. Okay, but verse 9 is the the key here. He's being worshipped for the salvation. And this is what John says in, in verse 9. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. Now, if it is indeed the whole world that is in view, then what should come after this phrase? Pretty simple. You have saved the whole world, right? Your blood, by your blood, you have ransomed the people for God. You have saved the whole world. Or your blood has atoned for the whole world. Instead, however, John becomes very specific as to what he means by a people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. So in John's understanding of Christ's atonement is that the whole world would be saved. It was not that the whole world would be saved, but rather a people from all around the world will be saved. That's the difference here. You see that? So John's understanding of the atonement is not that the whole world is saved. That's not what he's saying. But rather that... People from all around the world will be saved from every tribe and language and people and nation will be saved. So God is going to call out from these places, from different nationalities, from different places of the world, a people unto himself. In his gospel, we find another important insight that suggests the same thing. In John 11, 49-52, of his gospel, John records for us the words of Caiaphas, who was functioning at that time as the high priest during the crucifixion of Jesus. And he, he records for him saying this, it is better for, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John adds this very important comment to to those Infamous words of Caiaphas by saying he did not say this of his own accord. But being the high priest that ye, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather unto one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who are scattered abroad. So, note with me that he identifies a certain people. One, two, this certain people will be saved by the work of Christ. Two, and three, then he gets more specific by identifying them as children of God who are scattered abroad. Not that the whole world is going to be saved or, or have this, this, this mentality of, of it, it being applied to him. So considering these two texts from, from the pen and mind of John, it is evidently clear that John considers the work of Jesus' atoning sacrifice as being applied to a specific people who are scattered throughout the whole world. From every tribe and tongue. Therefore, taking John's understanding of who are saved, we cannot come to the text that we're looking at here in First John uh, chapter two, verse two, uh, and make it say something that John never intended to mean. The whole world he must therefore refer to all believers who are scattered everywhere. And in all time, it cannot include the reprobate it can't it can't be and and we don't have time to go into more detail as to why we we can't do that 's just two basic arguments but but it's so important that that we identify that that the phrase the whole world may be spoken in light of of the concern here that that has been raised in the upcoming verse, in verse 19 of, of this, this same epistle by John. He might be saying this in light of that, in what is going on in verse 19, where the congregation had kind of had remained, or, you know, those who were kind of left behind, some brothers had left the congregation, and so they were looking at those so-called brothers who had left the church and abandoned the faith for the deceitful teachings of these false teachers. Well, what can be made of all this? And how can we find assurance that we are in the truth and they are not? He tells them that his salvation will reach the uttermost part of the world. Just as John heard it from the lips of the Lord. But you will go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. There is a hope that even in the departure of these so-called brothers, God is still saving a people. And those people will be marked by, by certain I, I, identifiable qualities and to that we will turn next but we won't get to look at that this time until next week but what I want to get clear in our minds is this that this isn't referring to the whole world the whole world is not what he is concerned with in terms of applying this work it, it cannot include that we have to come to this verse with what John has already in mind. He clearly defines this work, this whole world of being saved. Um, it is restrictive. It is limited to a people. He's applying it to those who are scattered throughout the whole world. That this work is going to reach beyond uh, John's even um, uh, imagination, for lack of words. It's going to reach the whole world. It's going to incorporate not just the Jews, and that's something. That's another point that we didn't get to look at, but I'll just briefly mention. He, he many believe that what he's saying here, when when he says that not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, that he he has in mind this Jewish thought here, when he's applying not ours only. Um, but the whole world incorporating the Gentile world. So it's not just for the Jews, but this is the whole world as well. That there's more people besides the, the church that John was, was addressing at this time. So it, it, it's clear that this portion is referring to the salvic work of, of Christ, but applied to those who God has given to Jesus To save. So those who are saved are saved indeed. Those who are saved are saved indeed. And there is just no way around that. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And praise God for that. And I want to just point to one verse before we end this up. And and just kind of to solidify this a little bit more. Turn with me to Psalms 135, and we'll read just one verse, and with this we'll end. Psalms 135 verse 6 says this, uh, Psalms 135 verse 6, highlight this verse, underline and memorize or whatever you got to do. Psalms 135 verse 6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and all deeps. I want to just focus on that first statement there. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. We're talking about the salvation that is being given to a people. Does it please God to save Yes, the answer is, then He does that. He saves that. What He pleases, He does. He accomplishes it. Not that He makes it possible. Not that it it might be a maybe. Not that it it becomes a, a... a corporation where he relies upon the, the so-called believer to, to exercise their faith and declare, yes, I believe in Jesus. He's relying upon that. No. If it pleases the Lord to save, he does that. He saves. It's not dependent upon you or I. We're not discarding the free will of man. We're saying that in your free will, you've chosen to rebel against God. And so God has to come and and exercise His will, His will, His sovereignty. How is it that we are so, 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 so quick to be like, we have free will. We have this free will. I choose whatever. But neglect that in God. Who are we? To say, hey, I have free will, but God has not free will. He has true free will. And whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He accomplishes it. He finishes it. He starts it and He brings it to completion. If it pleases Him to save, He will save. And those who are saved are saved indeed. Why? Because He's entrusted this Unto his son, the advocate, the one who propitiated um, the sin, uh, sorry, the wrath of God that, that was falling upon the sinner. It is completed, it is done. We find assurance in his work and praise God for that. We'll leave it there, and I want to leave you with that, that sum, that beautiful psalm, that what the Lord pleases, whatever it is that pleases the Lord, He does. He does that. Nothing catches Him of God. We have assurance in God. It is a perfect work. It cannot be perfect if it, if it is reliant upon imperfect beings. It is a perfect work because it is dependent upon the perfect God. We have assurance. We have assurance in our advocate. He is righteous. So next time we will go into these things, these qualities. Now, I know that's a lot of setup. But next time we're going to get into those qualities that we got to look for in identifying whether we have this saving grace in our lives how can I know that I have this it, clearly we've presented it that this is a reliable salvation that this is something that is we can depend upon we can bank on this but how do I know I have this well John answers those in verses 3 to 6 and for that come back next time God bless, and as always, we pray that you've been blessed by this and uh, that God is glorified. May you have a blessed week.